You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Promise you this, above all else, I'm going to be more obnoxious, more overbearing, and I'm going to make you all learn to love it because you'll have no choice. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Back Minute Podcast. I am your guest host once again, JJ Leahy. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter at JJ Leahy. Did you miss me? I went to bed around 2.30 last night after recording the podcast, and I didn't get to answer all the questions that were submitted yesterday on Twitter and on Facebook. So I sent a joking message to Ryan today saying, hey, you know, I'd love to... You know, do the pod again today and finish up those questions. And as it would turn out, uh, he's, I don't know, feeling lazy or, I don't know, sick. Or maybe there's a family emergency. I don't know. He didn't tell me. But I'm back on the pod today. So, you know, as usual, you only have Ryan to blame for being forced to listen to my voice. But just so you're aware, you are not listening to me instead of listening to Ryan. You're listening to me instead of listening to nobody. I come on the show when Ryan is otherwise just not going to do a show. But I did ask for questions on Twitter and on Facebook. Did not get any questions along the lines of why are you the way that you are or is this the last time you're going to host this? Do you promise any of that stuff? Been a lot of opportunities for hate mail to get sent in and I haven't received any. So I did receive one note pointing out that I apparently clipped out (laughs) right at the beginning of yesterday's episode where I mentioned what player I was actually talking about. So I, you know, started the podcast off by saying, yeah, we didn't draft any of the players, any of the three players that I uh, did a deep dive on. And then immediately just dove into talking about a player without saying who the heck I was talking about. That would be running back Elijah Mitchell. Most of you guys probably figured that out, but yeah, I guess, I guess I just clipped that out at some point. So let's kick this off with a question from Corky Nelson on Twitter. This is probably one of the more difficult questions I'm going to be tackling today. Where does our secondary rank in the NFL right now? Best cornerback in the league, probably top safety duo. Kevin King massively, Kevin King is massively underrated now, but we have a first rounder regardless if he needs to be replaced, plus Sullivan and a promising rookie competing in the slot. Uh, a lot to unpack here. So best corner in the league. Yes, Jair was the best last year. Top safety duo. I'm on board with you so far. Kevin King massively underrated now, but we have a first rounder regardless if he needs to be replaced. I'm assuming you're talking about Eric Stokes when you say first rounder because Kevin King was drafted in the second round. Kevin King massively underrated. Um, So Ryan actually went through... Uh, a couple weeks ago, 
looking at all the cornerback grades, looking at all the CB2 grades via PFF. Uh, I'll just pull that back up. So in order for him to be a CB2, he would have to rank in the top 64 cornerbacks in the league in between number 32 and number 64. So Kevin King actually sits at 99. So that would make him a very late cornerback three in the league. Interestingly, Kevin King is not the second cornerback off the board here from Green Bay. Nor actually is he the the third. Jair Alexander is number one. Chandon Sullivan is 66. Josh Jackson is 94. And Kevin King is 99. So... He's the fourth best cornerback on our team. Let's break down some of these individual grades. Uh, His run defense is a 71.7 in 2020. That's actually by far the best run defense of any of our corners, including Jair. Jair has the second best at 61.4. Kevin King's overall defensive grade is a 50.6, which is pretty terrible. Um, And by the way, I'm not a Josh Jackson fan. I, you know, there's a definitely a group of fans out there who really want Josh Jackson to be starting over Kevin King. They really wanted that last year. I thought that was kind of ludicrous uh, because talent wise, I don't think he's really any better. And the coaches don't trust him to be doing what he's supposed to be doing, what he's assigned to do over Kevin King. So I, I don't know. I always thought that was kind of a stupid idea. I asked Ryan about it and he was kind of, you know, mildly in support of it, I guess. Kevin King's coverage grade, 45.6. That's pathetic. It's six points lower than Josh Jackson. It is 50 points lower than Jair Alexander. His pass rush grade, 60. I just, I don't know, you know, I've been a supporter of Kevin King. I'm not sure I can get behind the idea that he is underrated right now. I think he is probably actually still overrated, even after the NFC Championship game. Now, I like some aspects of what he does. I think Kevin King has some good ball-hawking skills. I hate his the way he tackles. I've always liked that he's a big-body cornerback. I feel like that gives us some matchup advantages when we have Jair who's a small fast really talented corner when we're going up against you know different wide receivers I I guess the Falcons are always the team that come to my mind the Falcons and I guess the Vikings are the teams that come to my mind you know when we played the Falcons you saw Kevin King kind of got put on uh, Julio a bunch of the night and and then uh, Jair is covering uh, Calvin Ridley and I really like that we had the ability to match up the big body cornerback against the big body wide receiver. Look, I think the team is better with Kevin King than it is without him, but I would like to have him further down the depth chart. And let me just reiterate in case you missed it yesterday. I think Eric Stokes is not going to be the starting cornerback two to kick the season off. He's going to need to earn that job and take it away from Kevin King. And, uh, you know that's that's why Josh Jackson was always riding the bench. He could not 
you know, PFF said that on a snap to snap basis, he was doing marginally better than Kevin King. He never took the job away from Kevin King. And I, I think Kevin gave plenty of opportunities there for a competent player to do so. Josh Jackson is simply not competent. But the larger part of this question was who has the best uh, secondary in the league, I guess, or where does our secondary rank in the NFL right now? Uh, had this conversation with a number of people in the last couple of weeks, and it seems pretty unanimous that there are two teams that people like to throw out there. Although I feel like the Ravens should kind of be considered as well, but uh, the Broncos and the Buccaneers are the two teams that everybody and their brother wants to drag out and, and mention and say, oh yeah, the Packers are not as good as these two teams. So let's take a look at those teams. We're looking at safeties first. So Adrian Amos was the second highest graded safety in football last year, just behind Jesse Bates uh, from Cincinnati. The highest safety uh, from Denver was Kareem Jackson. He was number six. Justin Simmons came in at number eight. To find the first Buccaneer, you got to go down one more slot to Mike Edwards at number nine. Actually tied for number nine with Cleveland's Ronnie Harrison. Also, if you go further down the list, at number 17, you hit the second Packer, Darnell Savage. And at 26, you hit the second Buccaneer, Jordan Whitehead. The Packers have the top talent at safety of those three teams in Adrian Amos. But the Broncos do have two top 10 safeties. The Packers have the number two and the number 17. Buccaneers have the number nine and number 26. Let's look at cornerback. So Jair Alexander is ranked number one overall. So you have the number one corner and the number two safety, both in Green Bay. Number three, Cornerback is Bryce Callahan. I keep wanting to call him Brian Callahan. Bryce Callahan from Denver. And then down at number 12, you have Jamel Dean for Tampa Bay. And the Packers do not have another highly ranked cornerback. And no, I'm not going to lump Eric Stokes in there yet because nobody knows what he is or how good he can be. The coaches don't know. We won't know until he starts playing. I'm not going to assign him any kind of a grade until... He starts playing. He, plenty of rookies end up being absolutely nothing. So you go down to 46 and you find the second Buccaneer in Carlton Davis. I don't know why people keep insisting on bringing up the uh, Tampa Bay in this argument. Is it because they managed to intercept Rodgers twice last year? It's the only thing I can come up with. I don't see any other reason that you would lump them in here. By the way, Denver has another cornerback at number 28. So that would still be a CB1 in the league. 20, 28, uh, number 28 cornerback out of you know 32 teams. They have multiple cornerback ones. Ronald Darby. So I, ahead of the Buccaneers, I would put the Steelers. I'd put the Rams. I'd put the Ravens. I suppose we really do have to give a small edge to the Buccaneers because if you ignore the snap minimum, we got one guy here who played a total of 17 snaps for Tampa Bay. Herb Miller, he had a 94.1 overall grade. 
yeah, it was just 17 snaps, but I mean, just imagine what he could have done with a full season. I'm sure he didn't stink at all, and that's why everybody knows who the heck he is. I mean, come on, Herb Miller, Herb Miller the third, whatever. It's not Tampa Bay. Uh, Green Bay probably has the second best secondary in the league. Got to see what shakes out this year. I think that uh, adding Eric Stokes has the potential to propel him forward. I think that there's also every possibility that some guys take steps backwards. You know, Adrian Amos, Jay Alexander had freakishly good years last year um, that were not super typical of how they have been playing. You know, they were the the first time that you know we've seen them being ranked that highly. Are they going to repeat this year? It's less than likely. But I'll tell you who is underrated is Chandon Sullivan. I just one simple question, you know, because the NFC Championship game got Troy Aikman calls out Chandon Sullivan saying, you know, if there's if there's one weak spot in this secondary, it's Chandon Sullivan. And Chandon proceeds to get matched up against Rob Gronkowski, a Hall of Fame tight end. By the way, matching up a slot corner on a tight end should be a pretty much a firewall offense anyways. So here's my question to you, because this is the moment when the public opinion seemed to, to turn on Shannon Sullivan, who was, by the way, a free agent we brought in off the street and paid pennies. Here's my question to you. Since when did Packer fans start giving a crap about anything Troy freaking Aikman had to say? All right, I'm moving on. That's, that's enough about uh, that. Question from Mr. Andy Monday on Facebook. Any further clarifications on what this defense is going to look like now that the draft has passed? I forget where I heard it, but would King and Stokes play on the boundary with Jair in the slot? My guess, Andy, is what you are thinking of is the discussion about having Jair play the quote-unquote star position. The star position I have... uh, Asked Coach Hahn about, and he graciously gave me a, a nice explanation. It has a lot to do with uh, run fits and sealing off the edge. It's still predominantly a position that plays on the outside. Jair is fine on the outside. The big question with Jair is where is the guy you want to match him up against playing? Is the other team's wide receiver one lining up in the slot? Uh, occasionally, when that happens, you're probably going to want to see Jair playing opposite him. Are we going to see a situation where King and Stokes are on the boundary and Jair is in the slot? Yeah, at some point that is going to happen, but you can't overgeneralize because these guys play all over the place. It depends on what's being called, what kind of coverage are we in. Does the draft class, I think your question is, does the draft class change what this defense looks like? And I think... Not, you know, to keep pounding on the uh, Eric Stokes thing. I think Eric Stokes is probably going to beat out Kevin King at some point this year. You know, maybe after a couple weeks, maybe later in the season. All dependent on his growth and development. Are we going to see TJ Slayton playing on the line? I mean, he's going to be buried on the depth chart for sure to start uh, behind Kingsley Kiki behind Dean Lowry if he makes the team. Again, with all these guys, no rookie is just going to get handed the job. They have to win the job in training camp. TJ Slayton is one of those guys who 
has a lot of physical gifts and needs some coaching up between the ears. I think a, a one big question to try and answer, and I can't give you the answer right now, but this is just something we should be thinking about, especially as we head into the offseason. We start hearing about what's going on in training camp. What is the situation with the edge rushers? Preston has been on, and I don't have an explanation for why, but he's been on a two-year cycle for the majority of his career. Okay, Brian Gutekunst alluded to this. Let's check out, I haven't actually looked, let's see, do his PFF grades match up with this, where, uh, you know, every other year he has a great year, and then he has a, a down year, and then a great year, and then a down year. Let's check it out. In 2020, his overall grade was a 53.1. In 2019, it was a 66.1, but his pass rush grade was a 71.7. Let's go back to 2020. His pass rush grade was 54.1. My guess, by the way, is we're not going to see his overall grade ever be great, but uh, looking at his run defense or his pass rush grade, every other year we probably would expect to see one of those jump up significantly in line with the stats, because his stats go up and down every other year. Let's go to 2018. Uh, 2018 was a good year. Wow, this is a better year than any of his years with the Packers. That kind of sucks. 76.3 overall grade. Run defense, 72. Pass rush, 68.4. Let's look at 2017. Another crappy year, 63.7. He had a 68.1 pass rush. 2016, it was... All bad across the board. 2015, 65.6 overall grade, 66.8 pass rush. That was his rookie year. I think we can conclusively say that PFF doesn't exactly line up with what Goody was seeing and what the stat column has uh, suggested about Preston. Let's look at the stats because there is a relatively clearer picture here. 2020, he had four sacks. He had uh, zero forced fumbles, zero interceptions. Going back to 2019, he had one interception. He had 12 sacks. He had uh, one forced fumble. Pretty good year. 2018, these are, this is interesting because 2018 was such a a highly graded year uh, for PFF for him. But stat-wise, one interception, zero forced fumbles, four sacks. Go back to 2017. This should be an up year, right? Eight sacks, so twice as many as he got the following year. He had uh, one forced fumble. He had two interceptions. 2016, this should be a down year, right? One interception, zero forced fumbles, four and a half sacks. Rookie season, eight sacks, uh, three forced fumbles, and zero interceptions. I think that rookie season, you got to, you know, be looking at this production and go, oh, wow, you know, we really got a guy, got a steal here. He's going to be great. And, you know, ends up not really ever being much more than he was in his rookie year, except for in 2019. And his PFF grades did not support the level of production that he was getting. They did give him a pretty decent pass rush grade uh, for that year, though. But, you know, Goody was the one who pointed out that his stats go up and down every year. 2020 was a pretty pathetic year for Preston Smith. You would expect that if Goody is coming out and saying, hey, he he is on track for a good year in 2021, 
Look, I you know, I, I don't have a theory as to what would be causing a pattern like this, and I would personally probably think this is a coincidence. Our GM does not think it's a coincidence. Our GM basically came out and said, expect a good year this year. That's why we re-signed him. So edge rusher, that's going to be really interesting to see. Does Rashawn finally pass Preston in um, snap counts? You know, or is this the Zadarius and Rashawn show this year? Or, are, you know, is, is Rashawn, Rashawn still buried behind Preston? And also, how is Preston playing? Is he, you know, doing better? Or is he still the same guy we saw last year? I had somebody, you know, going off in my uh, DMs tell me just how elite Isaiah McDuffie is going to be for the linebacking group this year. I don't buy it, but now is certainly the time of year that you should be super excited about all these draft picks, and that includes Isaiah McDuffie. I'm excited to see what he can do on special teams. I think our special teams is going to be uh, massively improved over last year. I thought Sean Menengo was a massive part of how terribly we were on special teams last year, just getting outcoached and outschemed week after week. You know, Coach Hahn is a high school football coach. And he's watching this film of our special teams and going, okay, here's a mistake that we see week after week after week. I don't understand why Menenga isn't talking to the guys about this and getting them to clean it up. If a high school football coach, and this is no offense to Coach Hong, I think he'd agree with me. If a high school football coach sees where you're just straight up not doing your job and can call it out, it's time for you to go. I'm really glad that Menenga is gone. I am hopeful that Mo Drayton is going to be an upgrade here and that we can see more consistent uh, coaching, more consistent um, scheming up of the special teams and noticing patterns, noticing when opposing special teams units and coordinators are taking advantage of you or trying to um, push you to make mistakes. You look at that Colts game that last year, that was pretty much, uh, I mean, squarely lost by our special teams. Rodgers was starting uh, deep into his own air ter- territory on every single possession. Uh, the The special teams was gift gift wrapping, beautiful field position to the Colts time and time again. You had uh, Darius Shepard screwing up once again. I think that was the the game that finally got him cut from the team. Cleaning up special teams. Locking down where both teams are going to be starting their drives off every time. That was always the lowest hanging fruit that we could fix this offseason. We have three players in this draft that our general manager specifically intends to have a big role on special teams. Amari Rogers, he already highlighted that he wants to have him handling returns. Uh, Isaiah McDuffie, he specifically was... was talking about McDuffie when he was talking about the last few picks of the draft, really having an emphasis on special teams. I think Kylan Hill running back is going to play a big part on special teams. Um, I, I I actually don't think that Hill was even really drafted with um, a lot of intent that he would be any part of the offense in 2020. Maybe he will. He's got to work on his pass protection first. Bagudi said that with the last few picks of his draft, he really had special teams in mind. So pair that with Lafleur giving us a new defensive or special teams coordinator. It's clear that they agree that that special teams is going to be 
you know, a massive focus of this entire offseason. We currently have two kickers, two punters, and two long snappers, so there's going to be competition for all three of those spots. But on defense, do I think that this draft changes much of what the defense is going to look like this year? Probably not. Obviously, the the biggest opportunity for uh, any change lies in the two cornerbacks we drafted and TJ Slayton. Slayton, I, I think, probably has a long road to being a starter. Just you know, looking at where he's at in college, he, he has obviously a ton of of uh, physical gifts. I think he's going to be pretty heavily buried on the depth chart to start the year. Uh, Shamar Jean Charles and Eric Stokes, I think have very viable paths to being starters before the end of the 2021 season though. So thanks Andy for the question. All right, I'm going to take an ad break and I'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing, but they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right, a company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Jesse wants to know uh, about Jordan Love's college teammates PFF grades. I love the question. That's absolutely the kind of question that I would love to have the answer to as well. Unfortunately, we don't have access to that. PFF did not grade the 2019 season. They didn't grade the 2018 season. None of Jordan Love's teammates got drafted in the last couple of years. Now, his running back for 2018 did get drafted in the 2019 draft. That was Darwin Thompson drafted by Kansas City in the sixth round. Uh, He's not been really much of anything. It is interesting that the 2019 Aggies with Jordan Love under center went seven and six. The 2020 Aggies went one and five. Obviously, you know, they don't have their starting quarterback anymore. And you're looking at a COVID season that was obviously super shortened. They only played six games instead of 13 the previous year. But you look at, you know, what remains of that roster after Jordan Love left, and it was only enough to win one game for the whole season. Oh, man. Horrible news. Uh, I guess Tariq Cohen's brother, Tyrell, 
uh, has died by electrocution while trying to climb power equipment at a North Carolina electrical substation. That's just tragic. I'm really sad to hear that. Wonder if he was working. Was he working on it? Oh, he says he was fleeing from law enforcement. Well, all right. So there's that. But uh, yeah, he's 25 years old. So this is actually Tariq Cohen's twin brother. Um, I've always actually really liked Tariq. Obviously, our our hearts go out to uh, the Cohen family and uh, Tariq in particular. Actually, this is heartbreaking. Tariq tweeted yesterday. Well, Saturday. You're going to hear this Monday morning. Tariq tweeted, Raleigh slash Durham area, have you seen my brother? Last seen 2 a.m. at Heroes Pub. Could be on foot in the woods, possibly injured. You know, regardless of what was going on, your heart just has to break for Tariq uh, and his family. And the uh, fear and concern they have for their loved one. So, yeah, my heart goes out to uh, Tariq and his family. So, all right, not sure how we segue out of that. Justin asks, going into year three for Matt LaFleur, the team should take start taking his identity. Obviously, offensively, that hinges on what happens with Rodgers, possibly. Defensively, we have new defensive coordinator, but he should have the guys, right? Now that we know what we got in the draft and got to see some changes from year one to year two, any thoughts on what we will see year three, knowing it's way too early to predict anything significant? Sure. Uh, LaFleur already told us that they've been drawing up new stuff. He made a big point of saying that, you know, there, there's film out there of what they did in 2020 and teams are going to uh, be prepared for that. I think he said something about like, there's no hiding now. Uh, teams are going to come swinging for us and we got to be ready. We got to reinvent ourselves. It's going to look different. Uh, you know, look, the, Style of offense that uh, the 49ers run, the Rams run, the Vikings run, the Packers run. It's all got its own little different flavors. You're going to see just a new flavor of that this year. Uh, Goody was really excited to uh, put Amari Rogers in LaFleur's hands, give him finally a really solid uh person to handle those duties that he's been trying to give to Tyler Irvin, trying to give to Tavon Austin, tried to give to uh, Geronimo Allison, tried to do with uh, Alan Lazard. You know, the hope is that Amari Rogers can just step right in and consistently be there. And there's not going to be any injury. So you're not going to miss time with Amari. That's the hope. Uh, you got to also look at uh, DeGuara returning. I think DeGuara is, should be a big part of this offense. You know, we were, for a lot of the year, relying on Dominique Daphne to handle those responsibilities of the F position that Josiah DeGuara was drafted for. You got the addition of Devin Funches. Uh, I, I think the biggest difference we're going to see here is how the running backs are being used. You know, you got A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, very different styles of backs. I think that uh, A.J. Dillon probably is going to be used a lot more for uh, you know, the, the power runs, you're going to see, uh, a lot of zone being used with Aaron Jones today. I watched the entire game, uh, the Browns Ravens game from last year. You may remember the poop game <laughs> where Lamar Jackson allegedly had cramps 
and then came out of the bathroom five minutes later and just played lights out. It was really cool watching the Browns because they had Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. And those two, I mean, those are two running back ones in the league. Those are top talent running backs, both on the same team. And they were spelling each other, keeping each other fresh. This is late in the game. It's the fourth quarter. And these two running backs are just pounding the Ravens defense who are at this point exhausted and can't do anything. And they're just driving the score higher and higher because those two guys are able to keep each other fresh. You know, Nick Chubb is not exhausted because he's only having to do half the work. Kareem Hunt is taking snap after snap after snap, and they're just ramming the ball down the throats of the opposition. I'd love to see Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon doing that. I'd love to see uh, opposing defenses just exhausted by the relentless attack of A.J. Dillon, just beating their faces in and trampling them over. And then, you know, when you load up and really, you know, try and shut him down, uh, the passing attack comes in and, and absolutely demolishes them. And you got to count for Aaron Jones, too. And he is so lethal in the passing game as well. He's one of the better graded out receivers on the team, despite being a running back. Having both of those guys in the field at the same time, I would love that. A.J. Dillon needs to work on his pass protection. Uh, but I would love to see uh, Dillon and Aaron Jones out there at the same time. And I'd love to see the defense just panic and you know, swarm to A.J. Dillon, try and shut him down. And, oh, look, it, he doesn't have the ball. Uh, we're going to do a little screen pass off to the other side and, and get the ball in uh, Aaron Jones's hands. And this uh, greasy, squirrely, lightning fast uh, little tailback is just going to be gone, just disappeared down the field. I would love to see that. It also all hinges on what the offensive line does. We don't have Corey Lindsley anymore, but we got Josh Myers. We got... Uh, Elton Jenkins, who could step in at center. We got, I think we have enough talent to put together another really competent offensive line, but there's a lot of questions. Last year, the identity of that offensive line was their versatility. It was guys shuffling around, playing different positions week in, week out. Kind of be nice to not have to do that this year. It would be nice to just kind of have a starting center, a starting right guard, a starting right tackle, get Bakhtiari back, have a starting left tackle. Rodgers or Love. You know, what? what's that going to look like? I don't know that the offense necessarily changes a ton with love under center because I don't think you start calling different plays based on love's ability to throw the ball. Love can still put the ball anywhere on the field that you need it to go. I don't think he has physical limitations. There are mental limitations. There's... You know, I was talking yesterday extensively about his vision, his decision making. Those are going to be key. And you may see more of an emphasis on, you know, let's let's try and emulate a bit of what Utah State did. Um, really lean into a lot of these crossing routes, uh, the, you know, the schedule, the time throws. But he was never afraid to take shots deep downfield and. You know, we saw him, you know, he had great anticipation. He was throwing guys open. I don't think the offense has to change just because love is under center. Now, is the quality of what you're trying to do drastically different with a second year quarterback who hasn't played in two years versus a future Hall of Famer who wins MVP? Obviously a massive difference there, but I don't think you necessarily change what LeFleur is calling on offense. 
But I haven't touched on what I think is the number one biggest opportunity for this offense to take a step forward. And as you put it, take on LaFleur's identity. And that is consistency. Remember, the in 2019, uh, the defense carried the team a lot of the time. The offense just wasn't quite all on the same page with each other. Their timing was off frequently. And you had times where Rodgers was, you know, unintentionally probably sabotaging the offense by not taking the scheduled throws that were schemed open and trying to uh, make those, you know, big plays happen. Year one to year two in the floor offense, you saw a massive leap in consistency. Guys understanding their jobs. Devontae, who was already at the top of his game, took a massive leap forward in 2020, as did everybody else on offense. Now, if you're trying to build consistency from one year to the next, what's the number one thing that you can do to encourage that to happen? Bring back all the same guys. On offense, we lost Tyler Irvin, who was not contributing anymore anyways. Loved Tyler Irvin in 2019. He was pretty much a non-factor in 2020. We lost Corey Lindsay. That's a big deal. We lost Jamal Williams. That is also a big deal. I think that, you know, from a leadership standpoint, from a team unity standpoint, and also his pass protection skills, Jamal was a very valuable member of this team. But it's time to move on. We got A.J. Dillon. Most of these players are all back. Uh, (laughs) If QB1 is back. That's going to be the thing. Do they take a big step back in their consistency, in their relationships with each other, in their uh, connectedness without Aaron Rodgers? Kind of hard to answer anything other than, yeah, probably. If Rodgers is back, this offense should play more consistently. We saw in 2020, he had just random, weird games where the offense would kind of fall apart frequently in the second half of the game. And that was something you saw a ton in 2019, and you saw it less in 2020, but it was still there. I'd like to continue going in that direction of cleaning that up, getting more consistent throughout the game and from a game-to-game basis, and quit having these really important primetime games where the offense just decides to not show up. We're going to take another break here, and i uh, got a few more questions for you. Robert Sanford had a long question about special teams. I already spent a lot of time talking on this episode about special teams, so I think I'm going to let most of that be the answer to your question. Specifically, he wants to know, what do I think about the special teams moves made? I like it. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to wait and see You know, once, we're, once the season's underway, you know, a few weeks in, if it was enough, but... I, this is the direction I wanted to go in, so happy about that. He asked, do I think both Amari and Stokes will both field kicks, and who does punts? Sounds like the plan right now is for Amari to do both. We'll see. Got to wait and see. Uh, all we have to go off of is what Gutekunst said. He seemed to be indicating that Amari is going to be handling both. 
Long snapping was an issue last year as well. I agree. I did an interview with our new long snapper um, who's coming in to provide some competition to um, Hunter Bradley. That would be Joe Fortunato. You can check that out uh, over on the Daily Cheese. It was published here as well. He says, long snapping was an issue last year, and without Boyle, we need a new holder, too. Uh, maybe. I think a lot of teams tend to have the punter holding, and I believe J.K. Scott was our holder last year. So that's my guess, is that our punter is our holder. So I, I don't know that we need to look for a new holder. Fun fact, it used to be that your starting quarterback often was the holder for uh, kickers. So I, you don't really see that very often anymore. And, you know, I mean, uh, Ace Ventura, that was a part of the plot was that uh, I think Dan Marino was the holder for who was his name? Ray, Ray Finkel. <laughs> yeah, you don't see that too much anymore. I, I can't remember seeing that in the NFL uh, when I have been a viewer. Mr. Eric John Anderson wants to know what are the top matchups this season for individual players? For example, Chase Young versus Bakhtiari. Excellent question. Let's look at the schedule. So, of course, we play the Bears, Lions, and Vikings twice. Um, Justin Jefferson for the Vikings versus probably Jair is going to be a big deal. But, you know, Adam Thielen and Jair match up all the time. And they got into it last year. That was kind of fun to watch. Uh, there's a great clip. I actually got to use it today. <laughs> so Adam Thielen was like running his mouth about how Lambo Field only has bleachers. And you could tell that general disdain for the Packers is at an all-time high right now because the general internet audience out there acted like this was like the biggest burn of all time. Oh, he said they just have bleachers. Listen, if that's all they have on us, I, I think we're sitting pretty. <laughs> um, the, but I, I got to use a clip because somebody like, you know, posted that clip of, of Thielen talking and, and allegedly roasting the Packers and said, Oh, he just destroyed the Packers. Look at these stupid Packer fans. And I said, yeah, I think that you're uh, diluting the word destroyed here. So here's a clip of Thielen himself getting destroyed. And it's a clip of Jair blocking Thielen into Stefan Diggs. <laughs> uh, he takes Diggs down with Thielen's body. I love it. Uh, but Thielen and Jair have absolutely gone back and forth and gotten the better of each other quite a few times. That's going to be nasty. Uh, we play the Steelers. That is going to be a heck of a defense to go up against. I'm going to have to listen to Packer fans whine about um, TJ Watt. So presumably that's another uh, battle for Bakhtiari. You got Minka Fitzpatrick, who is very, very good. So, uh, you know, I don't know who specifically you would say that a safety matches up against. Sometimes it's a receiver. Sometimes it's a running back. I mean, the uh, strong safety, his responsibility is the quarterback. So, you know, that's you got 11 guys on offense, 11 guys on defense. Somebody's got to watch the quarterback. That's the strong safety's responsibility. We'll play the Seahawks. I don't know. There's any individual matchups there to 
worry about, you know, kind of a crappy team that always, for some reason, manages to play well. DK Metcalf, I guess, versus uh, probably Jair. Gosh, I hope it's not Kevin King. We'll see. We play the Rams. So I, the Rams is going to be a fun one because Aaron Donald and Elton Jenkins got into it. Uh, if you recall in the playoff game, Aaron Donald got penalized because <laughs> he lost his cool and grab Elton's face mask and like starts shaking his helmet or something. And uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, gets penalized 15 yards is a massive uh, turning point for the game. And uh, now, you know, now you got reports that I guess Aaron Donald got in a fight with some guy at a bar and beat the guy's face in. I just think back to Elton's face after that penalty was called. And not even when the penalty was called, just like as soon as Aaron Donald let go of his face mask and the camera like zooms in on Elton's face and he's just like, he's got this like crap eating grin plastered across his face like, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, I provoked you. I, I want to know what Elton said that elicited that response from Aaron Donald. That was great. Uh, Well, here's the big one. We, we play the Ravens. I don't want to play against Lamar Jackson. I don't. He's the greatest rushing quarterback of all time, and he's only just heading into year four in the league. Um, so I guess, you know, what's your, your big question here is individually, whose job is it to seal off that outside, you know, and, and contain the quarterback? You're looking at, I guess, Zedarius and Rashawn. That's that's who you're looking at. You're looking at uh, some of your DBs. Jair is going to have to help seal the edge. Um, you're going to need your safeties to come flying in. That's going to be an individual matchup, but it's going to be one individual, Lamar Jackson, against the entire Packers defense. Um, I know he had a down year last year. I also know that I have severe PTSD from mobile quarterbacks going up against the Packers defense. And I don't care if it was a while ago that we played Kaepernick. I don't care <laughs> that it's all new guys and new coaches. I'm going to have to see it to believe it that we've changed. Not looking forward to that one. Uh, we play the 49ers, Nick Bosa, David Bakhtiari. Uh, Bakhtiari is going to be facing a lot of good pass rushers this year. Daniel Hunter, Khalil Mack. Uh, didn't the Lions just get a new, let me check out their roster. I think the Lions just got somebody new. Yeah, no, never mind. They absolutely did not. I Googled Lions pass rushers. First result, who will be the Detroit Lions starting edge rushers next season? Uh, Trey Flowers is their option. So forget the Lions. They're going to suck as always. Uh, Cardinals, you're looking at DeAndre Hopkins for sure. DeAndre, they, they don't. Hardly have any good players on defense. I know they have J.J. Watt. I know all of you love J.J. Watt. I know Ryan loves J.J. Watt. I'm not going to get into the J.J. Watt debate. I will stand by my statement that all of the Cardinals' good players are on offense, and that is why their draft this year, where they took a wide receiver with their first-round pick, was idiotic. If there's one position the Cardinals did not need any more of, it was wide receiver, but whatever. 
J.J. Watt, T.J. Watt, we're going up against both of them, and I'm going to have to hear about it from Packers fans. Lastly, of course, we play the Chiefs. So positionally, you're looking at uh, Tyreek. Again, I'm not actually a big fan of Tyreek, but PFF liked him last year. He certainly got the production last year. He's obviously blazing fast. He got Mahomes. Um, I, I think we match up well against the Chiefs. I said that all last year. I was looking forward to playing them in the Super Bowl because I felt like our defense matched up extremely well against theirs. Um, what Mike Pettin really wanted to do on defense is exactly what the Chiefs struggle against. But it's a new year. Mahomes and Andy Reid have and Eric Bieniemy have a chance to reinvent themselves. I'm sure they will. Uh, the 2020 Chiefs, I think, were not as special as some of the recent Chiefs teams we've seen. I think that that Super Bowl loss, you know, has the potential to be a hangover for them. It also has a potential for them to take advantage of, you know, the wake up call and, and go reinvent themselves. I'm not really scared of their edge rushers. I'm not really scared of Tyron Matthew. I don't think he's, well, I'm not going to get into that. He's fine. He's a good player. But yeah, Bakhtiari has to go up against Khalil Mack, Daniel Hunter, Miles Garrett. Can't forget Miles Garrett. Yeah, we play the Browns. I'm going to that game. Uh, he's We've got Aaron Donald against Elton Jenkins. Um, you got TJ Watt. You got whoever the Seahawks managed to dig up this year. They're going to sign or trade for somebody who's way over the hill. You got Chase Young. Uh, you got... Uh, Whoever the Cardinals are running with these days, you know, they got Hassan Reddick, you got J.J. Watt. Ravens have a phenomenal defensive line. Uh, I mean, Yannick Ngakwe is on there, and he's like their seventh best player along the defensive line. But you got to remember, uh, every year there are teams that we build up in our minds as being real scary and, you know, the team that we're dreading playing, and that ends up not being a big deal. And there's usually somebody that just kind of comes out of nowhere who gives us a hard time. And then in another category altogether are the 49ers who almost always curb stomp us. And I'm so not there for that this year. So we'll we'll cross that bridge when that happens. And I will try and muster up the fortitude to watch that game. <laughs> I hate watching us play the 49ers. Troy wants to know, what do you and what do I and Ryan disagree on? Uh, more often than not, players and I think it usually has to do with there's players that he likes that I don't really like I'm also super conservative in, in terms of like uh, salary cap type stuff I'm almost always opposed to any kind of trade I'm almost always opposed to signing free agents you know it's, it's not a hard rule it's just most of the time, I look at what we're getting versus what we're giving up, and I just don't like the value. And so, you know, he, he proposes some ideas and he gets excited about some trades and, and stuff that I'm just not on board with. Um, I'm also usually way too eager to move on from a player. I know one kind of real public uh, disagreement that we had was... Zedarius Smith, I was pretty much on board with moving on from Zedarius this past season. So we kind of got into that one a bit. 
I also really like some of the like lower talent, you know, undrafted free agents. I like kind of churning the bottom of the roster. Uh, you know, that was a big Ron Wolf thing. I always really got excited about that. Ryan uh, is pretty adamant that like the last three rounds of the draft are basically useless, or at least for sure the last two rounds of the draft are you know basically glorified undrafted free agency. And I tend to kind of be a bigger fan of undrafted free agency. So um, one other thing is when it comes to the draft, I'm pretty in tune with the Big Ten. And like a lot of NFL draft um, experts, Ryan doesn't have a ton of regard for the Big Ten. Uh, I, I don't dispute that the Big Ten is in many ways inferior to the SEC and a lot of these big programs, but I just know it really well. And I have my finger on the, the pulse of a lot of uh, you know lesser-known players. So, for example, in last year's draft, the 2020, is that right, 2020? Yeah, the 2020 draft, where we took Jordan Love. Um, there were there was a, a Michigan guy, Donovan Peoples-Jones, wide receiver, I was obsessed with. And uh, he ended up going pretty early. He was like a, a fifth-round pick, uh, which was significantly earlier than I was hoping he was going to go. And or maybe it was, maybe it was a real early sixth round pick. I think it was an early sixth round pick, and he went before any of our sixth round picks. So we would have had to move up to get him. And you know, we took Kamal Martin in the fifth round. But I was just really big on Donovan Peoples Jones. He was drafted by the Browns. He's been pretty good. Let me check out what his PFF grade is doing. So his rookie season, he has seventy one point eight overall grade, seventy three point one receiving grade. 20 targets, 14 receptions, two touchdowns, 300 yards, 304 yards. He was, in fact, yes, a sixth-round pick, but he went before our first sixth-round pick out of three. I really wanted to move up and get him. I thought that – well, I'll just tell you specifically what I liked about him because um, I, I watched Michigan. I live in Michigan. I don't like University of Michigan. I'm very anti-Wolverine, uh, but, I, you know – I'm an I'm an Ohio State fan, and and so I watched quite a bit of Michigan, and I really liked the way he played. Just very selfless, you know, putting his body on the line all the time, giving 110. percent And I felt like the talent that was surrounding him was just pathetic. And he's got all these times when he should have teammates blocking for him, and nobody's blocking for him, and so he is just fighting for every additional inch that he can claw forward. And I was really excited about that. He was great for the Browns his first year. Uh, you know, like I said, I watched that Browns Ravens game today, the poop, poop bowl <laughs> or poop game, whatever. And people's Jones is a massive part of that. He's laying out some, uh, big hits on defenders. He's doing a great job, uh, blocking for his teammates. Dude, just an animal. And he was a rookie. Uh, he was a sixth round pick. I would have really loved to have him. So, like I said, the Big Ten uh, really got my finger on them. Even even Michigan, who I don't like, uh, they had two players this last year that I liked: uh, running back Chris Evans and wide receiver um, uh, Nico Collins. We'll see how they end up doing. I wasn't as high on either one of those as I was on um, DPJ, but we'll see how they end up playing in uh, in the league this year. 
we're going to wrap this up. We got two final questions. Mark says, apparently Derek Carr and Devontae Adams were a top 10 duo in college. Please clarify. I just saw this on TikTok. Well, they connected for 38 touchdowns. That's nothing to sneeze at. They did play at uh, Fresno State. It really shouldn't be surprising that they were good together. Devontae is an excellent receiver, and Derek Carr is a really good quarterback. I think he's, most years, he's hovering around a borderline top 10 quarterback in the NFL. 2020, he was literally quarterback number 10 via PFF. They're good players. I, I would not at all sneeze at having Derek Carr in Green Bay if we got to move on from Aaron Rodgers. Obviously, he'd have to change his number because he wears number four. But, you know, yeah, he's a good quarterback. I would love to tell you where he ranked in 2019, but my version of PFF only <laughs> breaks down the positional grade uh, for quarterbacks for last year. But I do remember Ryan putting together a graphic. Oh, I got to message him and we, we got to dig up this graphic. He put together like a top 10 quarterbacks uh, a year ago, going off the 2019 numbers and 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 projecting forward who were going to be the top 10 quarterbacks uh, in 2020. And I vividly remember Derek Carr was on there and he was kind of high. So in reality, he grades out as the number 10 quarterback on PFF. I got to see where he ended up on Ryan's list last year. I want to say it was like number five, but I mean, come on, fluctuating between five and 10 is nothing. I think the biggest miss ended up being that he, I believe he had uh, Drew Brees pretty high on that list. And obviously Drew Brees just completely fell off last year, finished as the number 21 quarterback in the league. By the way, I talked a little bit about Nick Mullins yesterday. Nick Mullins finished as the number 36 quarterback in the league last year um, via PFF. So that's, you know, not dinging him in any way for the number of games he played, but just, you know, in the games you played, how well did you play? He was the 36th best quarterback out of 38. He was ahead of Jalen Hurts and Dwayne Haskins. Final question from Kevin. I'd like to know, theoretically, how the management infrastructure works in Green Bay. Seems like decision-making is split in thirds. Murphy has the business. Goody has the personnel. Mascot coaching. That said, how are things supposed to work when you have a decision that crosses all three? Is it consensus? Uh, so short answer is, you know, we don't exactly know because a lot of that is behind closed doors. Mark Murphy's at the top. If Murphy wants to do something and nobody else agrees, they do it Murphy's way. Andrew Brandt, former Packers executive, has a weekly podcast, drops every Monday. And last week, uh, he had a big Aaron Rodgers episode. And in it, he kind of talked about how uh, the infrastructure of the team's management is set up. It's very informative. I highly encourage you to go listen to that. They, there was a reshuffle in 2018 and 2019 here where Murphy got re-involved, I guess, in football. Goody and LaFleur both report to Mark Murphy. So LaFleur does not report to Gutekunst. Division of labor, pretty easy. Um, the general manager on, on any team is in, tr in charge of uh, talent. Scouting, uh, scouting draft picks, scouting free agents. Um, Russ Ball, I think, really handles uh, to a very large extent handles contract stuff uh, instead of Gudikins. I think Gudikins is not super involved in that kind of stuff. He's a scout. 
and and that's what you want in your in your GM usually, and they trust a lot of that financial decision uh, stuff to Russ Ball. Uh, back in the day, that used to be Andrew Brandt. All of the coaching falls directly on Lafleur's shoulders. Lafleur is tasked with hiring coaches. He's tasked with coaching those coaches. He's tasked with um, designing the offense. He is the CEO of the football team, and all the coaches work to carry out his vision for the team. Additionally, and this is common among a lot of teams, I think it's more common with college teams. Um, you know, Ohio State and Michigan uh, both are set up this way where you have a quarterback guru for a head coach, and we got that in Matt LaFleur as well. So he's an offensive-minded guy. He is involved in the offense. Ultimately, it is his offense, but he's also involved pretty hands-on with the quarterbacks. Yes, all the business side of the Packers does fall on Mark Murphy's shoulders, but he has intentionally involved himself in the football operations uh, since 2018. And it's not hard to see why. 2017, 2018. I mean, heck, Ropen 2015, 2016, the football side of the business was not going well. And I think a lot of that was sort of um, unfortunately in a way redeemed by the run the table stretch. You know, that that playoff run that they went on in 2016, I think covered up for a lot of really bad football in 2015 and 2016. 2017 was off to a great start and then they lose Rodgers and the entire thing falls apart and it pretty much gets exposed that they can't really do anything competently. So Murphy has been super involved in all the title town stuff at this point that turns around and really starts getting his hands dirty in the football side of business again, uh, replaces Ted Thompson. The new structure that he sets up has the head coach and the GM both reporting to him. That right there is all you need to know that Murphy is very much involved in the business. But yeah, the buck stops with Murphy. He's the uh, head of the whole organization, and he has positioned himself as the head of um, a lot of the football stuff as well. It doesn't seem like he is involved in any of the day-to-day stuff. That's all Lafleur and Gutekunst, but they do report to him. So to your specific question, how are things supposed to work when they have a decision that crosses all three? Is it by consensus? I highly doubt it. I think it's just what Murphy wants they're going to do. All right, that's it. We made it through all the questions. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sending in your questions. Hope we can do this again soon, and I will talk to you all later. Uh, Bye-bye.